It's Matthew 16, 13 through 20. Now when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, who flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. Well, Jesus and his disciples are once again in Gentile lands. And Jesus asks a question that is arguably the most important question that each of us could be asked. Who do you say that I am? The answer to that question has eternal consequences. And as he puts this before his disciples, it's, it's a question of, who do you say that I am? And it's not that their answer is going to change anything about who he is, because he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. There's a right answer and there's a wrong answer. What he's asking is, have you seen it? Who do you say that I am? Think about what they've seen up to this point. They've seen, as we've mentioned before, blind people seeing, lame people walking, deaf people hearing, mute people speaking. They've seen every manner of physical healing. They've seen the seas calmed and the winds stopped. They've seen demons cast out and things put right. And yet we know that they still, and sometimes we've seen that they, they still don't get it. In just 15 and 16, we've seen Concern over bread when he's already multiplied bread. We've seen the faith of a Canaanite woman that he calls great in his interactions with the disciples. Typically, that phrase that comes up is, oh, you have little faith. Again, that's a good thing, but when we compare great and little, there's a big difference there. And it seems like there's been this disappointment. The Pharisees and the Sadducees have come demanding signs. And now... As they find themselves in Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks them this question of, what is my identity? Have you seen it? What say you? And Peter gives this wonderful answer. The answer that if you are in Christ, it's not just a confession that we confess one time. It's what we daily confess about him. That he is the Christ, the son of the living God. But where are they? They're in this place called Caesarea Philippi. And Caesarea Philippi, it's about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So again, we're in a predominantly Gentile area. And, and in order for it to not be confused with the other Caesarea, or Caesarea, there's different ways that people pronounce it. Uh, there's a Caesarea or Caesarea that's on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. It's the famous one that Herod the Great, he built it out. There's a seaport that's built there that the ruins are still there. Well, Herod the Great's son, Philip, he built up this place and attached his name to it to make a distinction between them. Under Greek control, it had previously been known as Panias because in that place they had built a shrine to Pan, the nature god. 
and named it in honor of that pagan deity. Even today, if you visited this area, you could visit a location where actually it's one of the headwaters of the Jordan River, where there's in the, in the face of the cliff, there's niches that are dug out where pagan idols used to sit. In the Old Testament times, this was a place where Canaanites and Phoenicians worshipped Baal. And it's here. It's here in a location with a history of pagan worship and that's now devoted to Caesar, a place that's set up that has been set up in the past to honor the dead gods of men, that Peter makes this good confession about Jesus and who he is. You are the son of the living God. It's the place where Jesus chooses to ask this question. First, who do people say that the son of man is? Second question, who do you say? And so that first question that he asks them, who do people say that the son of man is? So he's asking them to say, what have you heard? What have, what's been said by the people? But do you notice that he gives the answer of who he is in that as well? Because he uses his favorite self-designation. Jesus' favorite self-designation throughout the Gospels is son of man. And it alludes, it points back to Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Daniel in this vision says, I saw in the night visions and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, that is God, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. So Jesus, in asking the disciples, who are the people saying that the Son of Man is? He also reminds them of who he is in that self-designation. Now, it wasn't one that people instantly you know, made a connection to. If he would have called himself the Messiah, that was one that held a lot of weight among the general population as well as the leaders. Or son of David, that had clear messianic implications as well. Jesus in saying son of man, again, it's his favorite self-designation. It gives a hint in the text of who he is, but it doesn't carry some of the, the weight that would ruffle the feathers of those that were around in that day, or in that day. But they, they, they answer. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. Well, it's interesting the answers they come up with, isn't it? The first being John the Baptist. It's interesting that they would say this. We don't really have a record of a prophet ever coming back to life. It could be. We're so used to instantaneous you know, information, right? You know, if someone of significance dies, how quickly do you get a ding on your phone or a little something that pops up on your computer screen or wherever you get your information? We know pretty quickly, don't we? So it's, it's conceivable that as they've, as, they've, as they've moved around that some people weren't aware of John the Baptist's death and maybe they thought, well, this is just John the Baptist finally come up from Judea to, to be around Galilee. Could be, we don't know. We do know that this is what Herod thought. He made that clear when we read Matthew 14, 1 through 12, that he had disposed of John the Baptist, and his response is, this is John the Baptist, come back alive. So we know that that thought was, was out there, at least with Herod and those around him. But it's interesting that they would say this because of John the Baptist being that forerunner, that voice that proclaimed the one who's coming. And then their next answer, others say Elijah. Now, Elijah, there is an expectation 
in the Old Testament of his return prior to the last days, prior to the coming of the Messiah. In Malachi 4, 5, and 6, we read, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he'll turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. So there was an expectation that Elijah would return as to kind of herald those days. Now, Jesus is going to tell them later on, I tell you the truth, Elijah has come. And that's when they realize that John the Baptist came in that spirit of Elijah. But the expectation of Elijah's return, we know that Elijah did many mighty works and Jesus has done what? Many mighty works. So it's, it's reasonable that some of the people would, would think Elijah and they would be looking forward to, this is the end of days. Because when Elijah returns, in their mind, once the Messiah comes, the story's over. We've reached the conclusion. Because remember, they, 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 they don't still understand how that Messiah is going to unfold and work. They just know that the Messiah will come. Jeremiah follows Elijah. Now, it's interesting, in the Old Testament, it said nothing of a personal return of Jeremiah. But there were some Jewish traditions that taught that at the time of the Messiah, Jeremiah would reappear. Jeremiah, he was seen as standing at the head of a significant series of prophets. Because Jeremiah kind of straddles. He was present during the exile as it started to take place. And then there were post-exilic prophets. And a lot of them spoke of those last days that were to come. So he's seen as standing at the head of a significant series of prophets. So it made sense that well, Jesus might be Jeremiah according to what they thought about potentially him coming. And then we get to the catch-all category, or one of the other prophets. So John the Baptist, some say Elijah, others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. It seems to be a default position for those who are not so sure about the other theories. I'm not sure that it could be John the Baptist, or maybe not, not really sold on Elijah, Jeremiah. Let's just say one of the other prophets. Well, prophet was a wonderful office. It's a good office. So they're saying something good about Jesus. They're saying something that it was true about Jesus. But, and even some today will go this far. They, they might fall into this category. You've heard it before. Jesus is a good what? Might even say he was a great teacher. Or Jesus was a great prophet. Islam says that Jesus was a great prophet. But the problem is, Jesus didn't teach that he was just a prophet. Jesus taught that he was more than a prophet. That he's the son of God. And if he, if he was the son of God, if he is, which he is, then he can't be a great prophet because he'd be a false prophet. Does that make sense? So the test of a prophet is if what they say happens. They proclaim something, they pronounce something, it comes to be. Jesus says he is the Son of God. If he doesn't prove to be the Son of God, then he is a false prophet. He can't be a great prophet if he's a false prophet. And so we need to recognize that. But it's interesting, by and large, as they put all of these forward, give the disciples credit. 
Okay? We have a tendency sometimes to be a little hard on the disciples. Here, give the disciples credit, because the disciples hadn't just heard that he might be Elijah, that he might be John the Baptist, that he might be Jeremiah, that he might be one of any number of other prophets. What else had they heard? They'd heard all the critics' opinions. He only does these works by the power of Beelzebul, which would make him a messenger of who? Satan. What did they not say? They aren't giving an audience to what? The falsehoods, the lies. They didn't put forward any of the opinions of the critics of Jesus. They show their wisdom here in their ignoring of Jesus' critics. They had nothing true to share. Now, this doesn't mean they weren't aware of what the critics said. And it doesn't mean that eventually that they wouldn't respond to the false teaching of those critics. But when Jesus asks, who do the people say? What do they not even put out there as a possibility? That he is what they say. They didn't give those critics a second thought. And so the first question, who do the people say the Son of Man is, we get the response. But then he comes with a second question. He's heard what the people are saying through the lips of his disciples. The next question. He said to them, but who do you Say that I am. Literally, that you is used twice. It's almost like if we ask someone, what about you? What do you say? That doubling up. The you in there is plural. So he's posing this question to his disciples, the whole group. Who do you say that I am? And it shouldn't surprise us, because in these situations, who's usually the first one to talk? Peter. Simon Peter replied. Okay? And in this case, I mean, we're used to Simon Peter opening his mouth and putting what in it? His foot. A lot of times, right? But Peter here, he says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. He kept it short, he kept it concise, and he kept it as true as true can be. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. I mean, you could argue that this is Peter's finest hour. It is the high point of the text, because what has he just done? He's made the good confession. Who Christ is. A Messiah, Christ, it's anointed one. Sometimes we, we connect Jesus Christ so closely that we think Christ is what? Well, that was his last name. It wasn't his last name. Okay? His la he, he would go by, arguably, among the culture of the day, Jesus bar Joseph, because that's who is Jesus, son of Joseph. Christ is the Greek rendering of Messiah from the Hebrew. And so it's Jesus, and then that's his title. It would be like Jesus the King, Jesus the Messiah. Okay? And so it's this honorific title that's there, but there is only one Christ. There's only one anointed one. And when we think about anointing, that has Old Testament roots. In the Old Testament, priests and kings and, yes, prophets, they were anointed very often, so, sometimes priests with oil, but always pre, sometimes prophets with oil, always priests and kings with oil. The priests and the kings were anointed with oil to indicate that they had been set apart by God and that the Spirit was upon them to fulfill the role that God had called them into. That was the symbolism of the oil with which they were anointed. And so with Jesus, we know that he wasn't anointed with oil, but he's been anointed. We've seen his anointing. 
And that anointing took place where? In the Jordan. As he was baptized and as he comes back up, there's no greater way to be anointed. I don't need the symbolism of the oil when the Holy Spirit comes down in the form of a dove and rests upon the Son of God and God the Father himself says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So we've had this anointing that has taken place. Now the expectation of the day was that the Messiah, the Christ that arrived, that would be the, the end of days. Think about what Jesus came proclaiming. Repent for what? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's right here. And so when people hear that, again, being shaped as they have been, they're expecting what? Whenever this comes to an end, it's the end. Now Jesus knew the full story and how it all needed to come about. And the disciples are going to struggle with that. We're going to see that. That comes up after this. But in this moment, the confession, you are the anointed one. You are the set-apart one. You are the holy one. You are the son, not just of God, but of the living God. Don't you love, I mean, don't you love Peter? When he's right, he is right. When he's wrong, he's wrong. <laughs> we'll see that shortly. You are the Christ. Singular definite article. How many Christs are there? One. You are the Son of the living God. How many are there? One. And he makes this confession. Keep in mind where they are. How? How? What is man's proclivity for making gods? We set them up and knock them down like bowling pins. Because every time we set one up, we find out that what? It can't satisfy anything. It can't do anything. It brings false hope. They're here at a place where all of these dead gods have been worshipped, who haven't been able to deliver their people from anything or do anything for their people. And here in this place, which is so indicative of, you see the progression of it, from, from the Canaanites to the Greeks that came into the area, to those that there's arguably shrines to Caesar now under Roman rule. False god after false god after false god. And here in the presence of where all these false gods have been worshipped and acknowledged, Peter says, you're the son of the living God. There's a contrast there between all the deadness that's been in that geographical location. And Peter proclaims this. In 1 Corinthians 10, 19 and 20, Paul says, what do I imply then that food offered to idols is anything, that an idol is anything? He says, no, an idol's not anything. But don't, he, he, he also wants them to be warned. I imply that what pagan sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. So there's a spiritual reality there in that offering. Okay? And so there's a living spiritual presence. But those gods that men set up, they're dead as dead can be. They have no power. But make no mistake, the spiritual act of sacrificing to whatever it is that's behind that, it takes you away from God and further into that death that is there. Because the fact is that anyone devoted to an idol is not carried or cared for by that idol. They will not carry you and they will not care for you. But that idol 
You know what everyone who's devoted to it has to do? They have to carry it. And they have to care for it. And what has it become? What it's always been? A merciless master who has nothing to offer. That's what had been taking place there. And now Peter comes in and says, you are the Christ. You are the son of the living God. You are a complete contrast to what has been worshipped and followed here. Because in devotion to Christ, one gains rest. Come to me, all of you who are who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest in Matthew 11. Those who come to Christ receive life. Matthew 16, 24 through 28. Take up your cross and follow me, for whoever would save his life, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You receive life in devotion to him. You receive an inheritance that is kept by God. And the one who made this confession wrote later on, to those who were going through the heat of persecution in 1 Peter 1, 3 through 5, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So what else do you gain in devotion to Christ, the Son of the living God? An inheritance kept by God for you in time to come. And what are you now? You are guarded by Him. Something that nothing that had been recognized in that area had ever done for anyone that was there. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Peter's answer we need to recognize because we live in a time and in a place where, well, if I say something is true, then it's true. And if I say it's not true, then it's not true. But any of us who think for a moment recognize that's not real. That's not accurate. Peter's answer doesn't make or unmake who Jesus is. It does reveal Peter's heart. What has been revealed to Peter that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God. That confession, it doesn't just reveal Peter's heart, it continues to reveal the hearts, our hearts, and the hearts of the people around us. If you say that he is the Christ, that reveals something about your heart. And Scripture tells us that no one can make that confession without the Spirit. So Peter's answer, well, it doesn't change who Jesus is because Jesus is, whether anyone acknowledges it or not, he is the Christ. He is the Son of the living God. The definitive question for everyone who walks this earth is who do you say that he is? Will you make that confession or will you confess something else, which is to say that he is not who Peter proclaims and declares him to be? So Peter says this, and I, and I, I don't know how quickly Jesus jumped in here or if he just let that sit there for a little bit. You ever had a teacher who when something profound and true and wonderful gets proclaimed, they just stand back and go, I'm not sure how the response went after this because nothing truer had been proclaimed. He says it, and Jesus answered him. 
I don't think he made him wait too long, but Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Simon, son of Jonah. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. So there's a blessing here. Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. What Jesus just told him is you are blessed, Peter, because you didn't work this up on your own. You didn't work your way to this conclusion. You didn't figure this out all by yourself. My Father revealed this to you. Those of you who are fathers or parents or have been involved with the bringing up of people, no matter how young or old they might be, what do you take the most joy in revealing? That which is what? Most precious, dearest to your heart. That which is most important. Jesus has told Peter, you couldn't figure this out on, my, on your own, but my Father has revealed this to you. He who is his precious one. And you've now confessed it with your lips. You couldn't figure this out. Paul later on in 1 Corinthians 2, he would say, among the mature we impart wisdom, although it's not a wisdom of this age. That's what's been revealed to Peter. It's not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, something that hasn't been revealed yet. They're speaking it and revealing it, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. What is that? That Christ would be, that Jesus would be the Christ. That he would save sinners. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. So the Spirit, the Father through the Spirit, had revealed to Peter who Jesus is. And he still works the same way among all of those who would make that confession. That when we confess Christ, we do so personally, but we recognize as well because the Father has revealed it to our hearts. So we confess. John Flavel talks about knowledge. And, and what Jesus has basically said, he, 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 he writes succinctly in this way. All other knowledge is natural. I can gain all sorts of knowledge in any number of different ways that would be natural, but this knowledge doesn't come through nature. This is supernatural. Eyes must be opened. Ears must be unstopped. Minds must be renewed. Hearts must be transplanted. That's supernatural. All other knowledge expends on human intelligence, but this depends on the Holy Spirit. The Spirit opens the eyes. The Spirit renews the hearts. The Spirit gives new lips to confess. All other knowledge fails to bring us to heaven. But this is a saving knowledge. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God, crucified for my sins and the sins of whosoever will come, raised for my hope. 
and the hope of all people. A knowledge that's revealed by the Holy Spirit, whom the Father sends. And it's interesting that as Jesus posed this question to them, that you, we mentioned it was plural. Well, you, but who do you say that I am? And Peter, he speaks up and he makes this confession. When you're, Peter's typically the spokesman for the group of disciples. He's arguably the oldest, and that would give him that place. And, and so Peter, he makes this confession, arguably on behalf of the band of the disciples. And we've seen this, and we see it in John chapter 6 also. Jesus, after he feeds the 5,000, and he begins to teach about him being the bread of life, and there's all these people that leave. In some circles, we call John 6 the church shrinkage seminar, because Jesus starts to teach about some of those things that people say they're hard, and it sounds like everybody leaves out of that 5,000 plus that were there. And Jesus turns around, and there's 12 left. He says, what about you guys? Are you going to leave as well? And Peter's response, Peter answers again, Probably for the group, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So Peter, he seems to be confessing this on behalf of the group. When we come together in church, when we come together as the church, we confess the same thing. If the church was together and someone came and said, I need to know the confession of this church, arguably they would look to who? Like it, don't like it, agree with it, or don't agree with it, they would probably look at the pastor. And the pastor, I would hope, would confess what? We believe in Jesus, who is the Son of the living God. He is the Messiah. And that confession would be made on behalf of whom? The whole body. But when Jesus replies in his blessing of Peter, how does, do you know how he replies? He replies in the singular. And so you can see that as he takes it singularly, the whole group confesses this. But he replies directly to Peter. When he replies in his blessing of Peter in the singular, Peter, he likely confesses this truth of who Jesus is on behalf of the group. But there's also a personal belief that's there as well. And when Jesus addresses Peter, he recognizes this in his response. Because while Peter responds on behalf of the group, he also responds for himself, but each of those disciples would have to do what? They would have to make that personal confession as well. Because Peter's confession on behalf of the group doesn't save who? It doesn't save the whole group. It might express what they believe, but each of them individually will have to make that confession. And it's similar today. Your mom's or your dad's confession of faith won't save you. Your grandma's or your grandpa's won't, won't. Your neighbors, your best friends. Everyone must confess this individually. But what we want to recognize is that as we confess individually and the need to affirm individually that we believe this, that's how we receive the benefit of Jesus Christ and his saving work. We also recognize that Jesus didn't just save individuals. He saved one big group. He saved his church. And when you come to him and confess that individually, you are made, a, made part of what? That group. As we walk through the remainder of these days prior to his return, that group meets in a lot of different places, doesn't it? Little way stations 
little places all around the world that are little glimpses of heaven that bear witness to Christ and who he is, that are made up of people who are saved and, generally speaking, there's also unsaved that meet among them. That's why we continue to proclaim the gospel and the truth of who Christ is all the time so that everyone would know it and everyone would hear it and what we would desire is that everyone would confess it. And so Jesus, as he asked in the plural, he replies to Peter in the singular, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. But then he goes to make a promise. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I will give, or I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. So he promises to do what? To build and also to give. Okay, what is it that he's going to build? I will build my church. Okay, so Jesus is the builder. It's his church. And he gives a promise with that. As I build it, what will not prevail? The gates of hell will not prevail. So what do we have the joy of in this declaration? As the church is built... What will not prevail against it? Satan. Hell. Because why? If the God of all the universe, God incarnate, says that it will not prevail, it won't prevail because it what? It can't. Now, does that mean in the interim that there's not some victories that they won? Does that mean that he doesn't? Of course he continues to fight. There's bitterness in this world. He fights knowing that the days are numbered and that there is an end to come. But as we walk through it, in the midst of it, whatever it might be, we have the hope that no matter how it might unfold within the story that he has taken our story and grafted into that great story, he will not win. And when he works, such as Stephen, we see it in Acts 7, such as in the death of Paul, such as in the death of any number of saints that have come before us, we would look at that in our own eyes, in our own understanding of this world and how it works, and that is what? A defeat. But God says what? I will build my church. And what looks like a defeat Maybe to you, maybe to the eyes of the world, it will not go down as defeat because I will use it. And if you doubt that, look no further than the crucifixion of the one that Peter has just confessed. The greatest evil the world has ever seen is the death of Jesus Christ on the cross. That's the greatest act of evil that's ever been and ever will be perpetrated. And God worked in the midst and through that and in spite of it to do what? As the hymn writer would say, to bring many sons and daughters to glory. Because he will build his church and it will not prevail. And as he responds to this, this is where, we, where some people get really, so, so Peter is the foundation of the church. No. 
Peter is not the foundation of the church, never has been. And if we go back into the Greek, it doesn't even come across that way even close. Jesus uses two different words here. When he says, you are Peter, he uses the word petros, which means little rocks. He says, you, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood hasn't revealed this to you. He says, you are Peter. But then he says, and on this rock, so he said petros, little rocks, but on this but on this rock, Petra, bedrock, foundation stone. Well, there's only one other thing. Peter's just done what? Confessed who Christ is. That's the foundation stone. The confession of who Christ is. On this confession, Jesus is the founder and builder of the church. Jesus doesn't say on you, but on this rock. It's not dependent upon Peter. Think about it. If it's dependent upon Peter, just look ahead. What's going to happen real quick to that foundation stone that just got laid? Get behind me, Satan. We don't want that for a foundation stone. It can't be a foundation stone. No way, no how. The foundation stone comes into that confession. So it's distinct, but it is connected to Peter. Because what's Peter going to proclaim? He's going to struggle here for a few chapters. And when I say struggle, we know struggle. But go to chapter 2 of Acts. What is he going to confess in its fuller form? He is the Christ the Son of the living God. And how do I know? I know it better than when I first made that for Clint, when I first said it. Because what? Because he died and he rose again. So the Son of the living God, though he was killed, yet he lives and whoever believes in him will live. He's going to proclaim that wonderful confession And this can help us understand this keys thing. Because this keys thing can get confusing too. Because when we talk about keys, just think about basically what are keys used for? What do you use a key for? To open a door. Or to what? Close it. <laughs> Jesus, or Peter just made a confession that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for you haven't figured this out yourself, but my Father has revealed it to you. It was opened. It was opened. But then Peter very shortly is going to say what? Jesus, the cross ain't got no part of this. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. That door was what then? Closed. Now that doesn't mean that Peter was saved and then not saved. But what Peter proclaimed makes a difference. As long as he proclaimed that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, he proclaimed that which opens the door to whosoever hears and responds in a like manner. Those that reject it what happens to that door? That door is what? It's closed. It's a closed door. 
It's a locked door. Because if you receive the truth of who Christ is, you are welcomed into what? Life eternal. If you reject the news about who Christ is, you are locked out of what? Life eternal in Christ. The keys are used to open and to close. So he says, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you like English, some of you don't like English, but it goes all the way back into the Greek here as well. I will give you. So did he give the keys to Peter right then and there? No. I will give you is future tense. What still had to take place? Jesus had to fulfill his mission. And as Jesus has spoken to them, I will make you fishers of men. He also tells them after he's arisen that they need to do what? Go back and what? Wait. Wait for what? The Holy Spirit. Because in Acts 1.8, as Jesus speaks to them, he says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. In Acts 2, what comes? The Holy Spirit. The power has come. What happens immediately? Peter proclaims what? The fullness of the gospel. And the door is what? Open. And how many are saved on that day? 3,000. And that gospel continues to go forward and more and more and more are added. It continues to go forward 2,000 years later and more are added. And so this reality, this future tense, when we look at this, there's a per, there's the per, when we look at this, the Greek perfect has its traditional force. The text is very clear. The perfect signifies that a past action causes continuing effects or states of affairs. What's the past action? The crucifixion, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. That fixed past event is continuing to bear fruit where? In the future. As the message is proclaimed. The perfect signifies that a past action causes continuing effects or states of affairs. The context has clues about times. Jesus will build his church and will give the keys to Peter. So we can give that future passive perfect, whether you like the English and the delineation of all of that or not, that's how it works through a language. It makes it very clear. When Peter speaks as an apostle and proclaims that Jesus is the Messiah, he is the Son of God, he uses the keys as he speaks. And do you recognize the joy of that? Peter doesn't determine who enters or doesn't enter heaven, does he? He puts the keys before. He puts the keys out there that open the door. Paul would say it this way. The day of salvation is when? Today. The gospel has been proclaimed before you. The door has been set open before you. Today is the day of salvation. Do not wait. Walk in. 
Peter doesn't determine who enters heaven and who does not. Rather, when Peter proclaims the gospel, he restates and announces what God has already decided. If anyone repents and trusts Jesus, his sins are forgiven, the door is open, and the penitent enters God's kingdom. Anyone who rejects Jesus, the door is closed. In Romans 10, talk about how does faith come? Through hearing and hearing through the word of God. That's how that door is opened. Jesus has called them to be fishers of men. He's instructed to proclaim the good news of the kingdom to Jew and Gentile. Why? Because all are invited. That's what he's calling them to. And that's what he's going to give to Peter and to all of the apostles. But then he says this thing that we see come up. Don't tell anyone that I'm the Christ. Because why? The fullness of time hadn't come yet. You start going around saying, this is the Messiah, this is the Messiah, and men are going to take things into their own hands. And Jesus would die at the appropriate time. And he wasn't about going on the men's schedule. He wanted God's will to be done. And so when we look at this, we see that Peter, God revealed something to him that he'd been working, because God is always working. It comes to this point where Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. What has been revealed to him is something that is his, Deuteronomy tells us, forever. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. God, the Father, revealed to Peter who this is. He hasn't revealed yet to Peter of how this is all going to unfold. That becomes real clear real quick when we come into our text for next week. But that revelation, that revealing that has taken place is something that was for Peter and is not just for him. It's for you and for your children forever. Because Christ has been revealed, as the, Jesus has been revealed as the Christ, as the Son of the living God. Peter, I don't think he ever lost this. Because it comes up later on in his letters. That's an encouragement to all of us who are in Christ. Because Peter later on in, in 1 Peter 2, he said, as you come to him, a living stone. There's that word again. It's Petrus. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. You yourselves like living stones. Do you hear the seeds of what Jesus said to Peter coming to fruition here as he writes this letter to believers in the heat of persecution? Peter understood this now and he recognized it and he continues to confess it. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. Jesus is building his church to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ, for it stands in Scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a chosen, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and, the stone, and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble, those that don't listen, because they disobey the word. You, my little stones, 
are being built into a house for the living God. And then Peter, he doesn't place himself above all the other believers. Because when we flip a couple more pages, we get to the introduction, we get to his welcome in 2 Peter 1.1. And listen to the humility and the wonder of one who was restored to the service of Christ after he denied him three times, the one who made this blessed confession and it's working through his life. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing. Peter doesn't see himself how. No, he sees himself side by side. Equal standing with you. He doesn't wear a funny hat and do strange things hidden away from the sight of all men. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. In our fallen humanity, we are blind to the truths of God. And unless God the Holy Spirit opens our spiritual eyes, we cannot see the loveliness of Christ. This means if we think Jesus was a great man and a prophet, we're blind. We've missed the most important truth that can be proclaimed about him that Peter proclaimed on that day. Who do you say Jesus is? To answer that question is not just a matter of correct theology. It will determine where you spend eternity. Either in the blessedness of those who follow the sweetness and the excellency of Christ, or in the company of the damned who refuse to submit to the only Son of God. Come to him today. Confess him for who he is. And if you've done that, continue with every day he gives you and share it with others.